Thanks so much for being with us on this snowy Sunday morning. We are going to talk about a company, GrowTech Labs and ETC3, and they have launched a plant science research center in Vancouver. So what exactly does that mean? Let's bring in Berinder Rossotti, CEO and co-founder of GrowTech Labs, uh, to talk a little bit more about this. Berinder, so great to have you back on the show. Good morning, Jill. How are you? Very well. How about yourself? I'm doing really well. We're super excited about this new opportunity. So what exactly is this? When we talk about a plant-based or plant research centre, what is this? Well, what it is, is as uh, Jill, that we know the world is uh, evolving and changing around how they're approaching uh, wellness and how we're viewing medicine. Uh, I think there's been lots of conversations about uh, the opioid crisis. Um, And even in our day-to-day lives, we know that people are looking at not only Um, medicinal medicines like cannabis or uh, we're reading headlines about psychedelics. But we also know that there's other products like lime's mane and turmeric that people are including into their wellness regimes. And, you know, one of the things that's important is that we create a common research space um, that supports people who are doing research for this new um, era of wellness. And so it's all plants, because I know you were with Niche before, focusing a lot on cannabis, but is cannabis part of this as well? Uh, absolutely. So I founded the nonprofit, the National Institute for Cannabis Health and Education, as Canada was moving into legalizing cannabis. Um, but what it really did for me and for GrowTech Labs is uh, introduce us and move us in the direction of the other plant-based medicines that, that are out there. And as we see um, headlines and in a new world where people are being more bold in what they'll consume, we also still believe that we should have uh, an environment where people can trust product and know that it's been tested. Uh, Which makes sense because certainly you can go on the internet, you can go to any number of places and uh, if you're looking for something that will help heal something or help, you can no doubt find it. But what you maybe can't find is the research to back it up or something to make sure that what you're taking or what you're getting is actually going to help you. Absolutely. So, um, you know, medical protocols, uh, as we're looking at more and more conversations around how to treat post-traumatic stress uh, syndrome. Um, when we look at addictions, um, there's a movie Dose that was done that does a really good job of following the journey of a young woman whose addiction and trauma is healed by plant-based medicines. Um, we do think that it's important that we provide experts an opportunity uh, to have access not only to space filled with equipment, but access to both partnerships and an operations team to take care of the day-to-day business-focused Uh, things that come with research and innovation. Um, So having uh, compliance coaching, safety meetings, um, providing the lab space are all things that we think will help move uh, the research that's needed uh, in plant science to the level that uh, consumers are now ready and open for. So what kind of things will people learn from this, this company? Well, what people will have is an opportunity to be a part of an ecosystem Uh, where they're in research space that's filled with wet labs, uh, support networks, access to experts in the field uh, around the world. Um, And they will also have an opportunity to collaborate. Two people may be working on the same idea um, and to get uh, support both maybe in terms of government grants and funding so that we can have well-documented research and they can um, advance their business to take these products to the market.
I know you're talking about, so, and again, we talked about cannabis and the different uh, medicinal values of cannabis, but are you talking about other things as well in that, uh, I mean, if you go back, there's a long history of, say, like turmeric or other uh, plants that are anti-inflammatory and have other uh, medicinal qualities? Yes, but we will also be looking at things like um, uh, psilocybin mushrooms. Uh, we will be looking at companies who are doing work with ayahuasca and iboga. So it will be a wide variety of both psychedelic and non-psychedelic plant-based medicines. Uh, is there anything like this already or, or is this something new that, uh, that you're kind of filling that void that was out there? Oh, no, this is something that we're um, making sure that the the Brain Trust and the Spirit plant-based conferences that have been taking place in Vancouver for seven years and organizations like Numinous or uh, MAPS up at UBC are all working together because what we do know is Johnson & Johnson, uh, J-Labs has a huge network. Um, also, we know that the John Hopkins uh, Society is now moving into the space to do research. So, you know, this is something that is more of a worldwide um, move towards plant-based uh, medicine. And what we're wanting to do is make sure that we have a hub here in North America that's providing access to the research and the brain trust that exists in, on the side of the world as well. And how do you make sure then that people are confident or people trust that what what you're what you're dealing with or or that plants and plant-based medicine would work as well or perhaps even better than say more traditional or more uh, more kind of chemical type medicine? Well, what we do is we provide not only the scientists, the medical professionals, uh, but also the ancient healers who are um, in other parts of the world by documenting uh, their uh, recipes and therapies because that knowledge is also being lost. What we provide them is an environment in which they are able to develop out their research and then share it with the world and uh, create IP that uh, will possibly lead to uh, new patents and medicine and new treatments. And, you know, it's a struggle for people to be isolated while they're doing this work. So we want to provide a, a facilitated space and business services for them to do well. And when you talk about treatments, are you talking about any particular ailments or diseases specifically? You know, I think, Jill, that's a really good question. And I think one of the things that we're learning is that a lot of the ailments and treatments that we deal with in life are also preventative and uh, focus on having uh, preventative solutions for, um, you know, things that are either caused by circumstances or genetics, whether it is, you know, something like post-traumatic stress that comes from situational things or, or um, people who are dealing with a severe addi- uh, addiction or severe mental illness. Uh, all of those type of things now people are looking at where along the way could we have had uh, treatment earlier or other treatment options that aren't so um, cause so many other challenges and disabilities and challenges around living life in society. So it will be a holistic approach. Uh, there, you know, there are other therapies that people are using that are um, not only medicinal, but they put them um, in concert with life changes and uh, meditation, um, mindfulness, and creating a hub for all this new wellness, I think is really important. And it sounds like there are a lot of experts or a lot of researchers. How do you draw people to the center? You know, I think it's going to be um, one of the things is basic logistics. It's going to be uh, geography. Um, but what we will be able to do is to attract a network 
of researchers from around the world who will collaborate, even if it's not physically from the space at UBC, which is 81,000 square feet. Um, but it's creating access for people to share um, and to then reach out to other parts of the world in an organized fashion, because we'll be providing the broad business services for all these scientists. You can't do it all. You're either doing the science or running the company. <laughs> Absolutely. So 81,000 square feet, that's a pretty big facility. Oh, and it's beautiful. It's 81,000 square feet on six acres at UBC at Westbrook Mall. Um, and it's already built out to be purpose-built research. It was used uh, for paper and pulp and mining research. But as we know, those industries um, aren't as vibrant here in Canada as they once were. So it was a good opportunity for us to not only uh, create a great vision around wellness research IP hub, but it's also a space that's sitting vacant that should be put to use. All right. Will the public be able to go there and see it, or is it a closed-off space? You know, um, at this point, it will be a a closed-off space for people to be able to uh, work. Um, Of course, there are companies who will um, probably be keeping all of their IP very um, confidential at this point. Um, But there is a seminar room where we will be doing events for the public, and that's when the uh, public will be introduced to all of the work that's being done in this area. All right. Sounds uh, really fascinating. I mean, in my mind, I'm picturing people in white coats walking around with plants, but I'm sure that's (laughs) highly oversimplifying things. (laughs) No, it's actually not, Jill. And you know what? I think that's an important point. Um, Maybe we've overcomplicated things, but um, plants have been a basis for medicine around the world, whether it was Egypt, uh, uh, Chinese traditional medicine, Ayurvedic medicine. We're reading more about it. We're experimenting personally more with it. But it is as simple as taking what nature has given us and then for us now to take uh, that science and research and give the complicated technical lab space and the collaborative space to actually create um, medicine from those plants. All right. So, well, interesting, interesting research. Uh, Burinder, thank you so much for joining us to talk a bit more about this. Thank you for the opportunity. We are talking about community college and should community college be free? What would happen if it was? Well, one expert says it's worth looking at. And Bruce Sasserdote is a professor of economics at Dartmouth College and joins us on the line now. Bruce, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. Very excited to be here. Excellent. Well, you have written about this. So, so first off, is it a good idea? Would it be a good or have a positive outcome if community college uh, was free of charge? Well, it's not the worst idea in the world uh, because it would get more uh, folks into community college and increase the number of associate degrees. But at the same time, it would uh, it would drag some people out of four year institutions and slightly reduce the number of, of four year degrees. So it's a that poli- the policy is a bit of a mixed bag a rel- relative to some other things that we've studied and looked at. All right. Uh, you've also looked at kind of how people feel about school or how they treat it, uh, the difference in how people treat it, if they're paying for it or if it's, if it's free. Yeah, we've done, we've done a bit of that. And I, and I think there is a, uh, there's a consensus that it, that it helps to have some skin in the game and that people, people tend to value things that they pay for to, uh, to, to some degree. So, yes, I, I think there is some truth to that. There's also, on the flip side, there's a big, if you're trying to get people to enroll in something by announcing that it's free, you know, small, small, even, you know, $1,000 tuitions can matter. If you announce that you guarantee it's completely free, you do bring in a bunch of folks who are just kind of attracted by the, the, the value proposition there. 
Right. People that would maybe think of doing it or go to school, even if they, they weren't going to do it when it costs money, but if it's free, then kind of that why not attitude? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, there's this magical thing about something being free. I mean, of course, nothing's really free because they're giving up the earnings that, you know, they'll have to pay for food and housing and they're giving up the earnings that uh, they would have while they're in college. But just sort of there's that magnet of if you, if you can guarantee it's not going to cost a dime, that does, that does tend to get people excited. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what about the idea that already, though, if you go to community college, there are tax breaks and there are ways that it's it's not uh, an extremely expensive or compared to other types of post-secondary school, it's not an overly expensive option? That's right. I mean, it, it's shockingly uh, affordable to go to community college. and It varies a lot state by state. And I live in one of the highest cost states. But on average, the college board noted that um, the Pell Grant uh, for, for, for uh, moderate and low-income people, the Pell Grant is actually bigger than the cost of tuition and fees at community college. So you actually get a refund. When you go each semester, the school typically um, gives, gives students a refund uh, from the Pell that they can then use for living expenses and things. So it's a co- community college typically is extremely affordable for folks, even now without, without free guarantees. Uh, do people use it then as as a stepping stone to go uh, to a four year program, or would it would it be useful in that sense? And that maybe community college isn't your your final goal. Yeah, uh, that would be wonderful. If um, it is certainly. Um, every state has tried to make it as much of a stepping stone as possible, and I can talk about how they do that. But the reality is that the rate of transfer is very low. And so the, the fraction of people who start at community college but get a four-year degree is quite low. I mean, you're talking like maybe 10 12 percent. So it's, um, uh, in theory, it's an incredibly cost-efficient stepping stone. In practice in the U.S., it hasn't, it hasn't really worked uh, nearly as well as we'd like it to. And so how do you make it more of a stepping stone or how do you make it appeal in that sense? So, you know, the one thing, like just to use New Hampshire as one example, and this is only one of many examples, they do have a program now where you can get accepted simultaneously into the four-year public system and the two-year public system. And you then uh, transition seamlessly. And they have, there's this phrase, articulation agreements. And that's basically a guarantee that if you take this set of courses at uh, a community college, they will automatically transfer in with full credit into four-year publics. Those kind of programs do have some traction and they work. The other, let me just throw one other program at you, which is really neat, but, but, but vastly underutilized. You know, in a state like Virginia or California, if you achieve a B average, they will guarantee you admission to a four-year public of your choice. So, so people have the opportunity to get into some very selective four-year schools by achieving um, decent grades in community college. And people take advantage of that, but, but, but not nearly enough people. Which is interesting, because then if you maybe don't have the grades in school, in grade school, to get into those uh, institutions, then you could kind of buckle down, I suppose, if you get into the community college and do really well, that, that does work to get you into a school that you might not have had the opportunity for. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like the number, the vastness of opportunity in, in, in post-secondary education is really impressive. And I think the problem is that, that it's much better than people realize. It's that people don't fully know about it and aren't fully taking advantage of the, of the deals that are out there in, in, to, to some degree. Right. So, and, and you, you wrote about this as well, just, and we kind of touched on this, uh, but do students behave differently when, when they know that the schooling they're in, and like you said, it's not completely free, you're giving up something to be in the school, but do they behave differently when there's not a price tag associated with it? 
Yeah, I mean, that's certainly the fear. And, and so, for example, I've, uh, co-authors and I are, are studying the, the post-9-11 GI Bill, and there's a case where um, the Army uh, pays for, essentially pays for all of your tuition and fees, right? And they even give you a generous housing allowance. And the problem can be that if, if the program is that generous, People might go to people might choose to to enter education even when they have they have no interest no not much aptitude for it or really really no interest in in getting the degree or pursuing something that's going to change their life and so that you know we actually find that if the subsidy is too generous it can actually harm your earnings hmm. and do the areas of study vary then if somebody is choosing a community college versus a four year program. Oh, I think I think uh, tremendously so. It's not something that in our paper we um, uh, we tabulate specifically, but yes, you know, a lot of what community, a good chunk of what community colleges do is very practical, nuts and bolts, useful things like training you to be a radiologist technician, training you to be a welder. Um, these these type of programs that have immediate applications to the job market. Some um, even. Uh, uh, kind of co-locate with large firms like Toyota has community colleges where Toyota actually directs what's in the program of study so that they can immediately hire those people when they get out. And so it can be extremely practical. So there, 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 there's, quite a, there's quite a difference in the sort of majors and concentrations between community colleges and, and, and four-year publics. Hmm. And do you think that this will start the conversation or is the conversation being had as far as whether or not more community colleges or should go that route of making it more accessible? Yeah, and it's already so incredibly accessible. So it's almost, I haven't, I've only talked to a few sort of community college presidents and chancellors about this, but I think that they would, I, I think people who are actually steeped in this policy, in, 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 in on the front lines, would rather that we talk about better funding for education than necessarily announcing that it's free. Um, there's not, you know, I, I, would, I don't think it's the worst policy in the world to simply announce that it's free because it's, it's quite affordable already. But, you know, I, I would prefer that the conversation move towards um, how do we better support um, public institutions at the two and the four year level um, and just announcing that it's free may not be the, the best bang for our buck. All right. Uh, interesting conversation. Absolutely. Bruce, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Thanks for uh, coming on the show to talk about it this morning. Yeah, my, my pleasure. Ha- have, a, have a great morning. Well, if you use the messaging platform WhatsApp, and I know a lot of people do, you may have seen something offering cheap airline fares. It is just one of a very, a very large number of scams uh, that target people using these apps. Uh, the RCMP put out a warning about this, uh, but we're going to bring in Jesse Miller, who is the founder of Mediated Reality, also a social media educator, to talk a bit more about this. Jesse, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me, Jill. I would imagine it's not different that scammers are trying to get people to fall for their scams. But what was it about this WhatsApp phishing expedition, I suppose, that caught the attention of RCMP? Or that, that what is it that people should be worried about or concerned about? Well, we have these scams everywhere, whether it's in your email inbox or Facebook, where people click third-party advertisements. But I would say right now that we see police attention with certain scams that target certain communities. And with this WhatsApp scam coming out of the Syria RCMP, it specifically targeted individuals who spoke and wrote in Punjabi. 
So within that, you're looking at an international scam that's targeting an international population where you have people in immigrant communities who have uh, a geographic area where they can specifically target. So for a Punjabi scam in Canada, you would see specific targeting to communities like Surrey or Brampton, Ontario. If it was a WeChat scam, we would see it targeting towards Richmond, British Columbia, targeting the Mandarin speaking population. Hmm. Which is, I mean, people, I think, like to think that they would recognize these scams and would see them and wouldn't fall for them. But clearly the scammers know that they're targeting a certain communities and, 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 and people that uh, they, they obviously are trying to get it past people or they've had some success. Very much so. And what I what I think is important to recognize here is it doesn't matter where a person's from. It's about how something's communicated to look believable. So if I can't speak or write in Punjabi, I look at the screen, I have no idea, I'm going to dismiss it. But if it is a person looking at, at getting a deal to fly from where they've immigrated to, to back home or to bring family back and forth, it looks more appealing. And within that specific wording can make a person believe something looks verifiable, despite whatever education level they have. It's just about somebody doing their due diligence to figure out before they put their credit card information in whether something is a scam. And how are they getting away with it? When we talk about when you're online or when you're using these apps that you have to sign in, that there, there, there should be some digital footprint. How are the scammers getting away with it? Well, there's multiple levels to this. Sometimes it is about uh, uh, groups of individuals around the world who basically work in farms of computers where they have information about individuals. They'll target those people based on certain uses of their internet. It's also about the vulnerabilities. A couple of years ago, we had an Aeroplan hack where the majority of Aeroplan users had their uh, passwords and email information uh, breached. And that now goes into a database where it sits and somebody says, okay, we're going to send an email to this specific person, make an email look believable, leveraging some information, maybe viewing some sensitive content online, and then showing the password that they have, and hopefully the person's changed their password since the, since the breach, but then saying, we know who you are, we have your computer information, and the more that's personalized, the more the person becomes vulnerable where they think they have to participate in a scam. So the hard part here becomes legitimate scams where it's, oh, just buy something, and other ones that are very specific targeted to the individual saying, we're going to leverage power over you so that we can get some money out And at that point, I'm guessing, too, there comes in a certain level of embarrassment or something if people fall for it. Very much so. I have clients who are C-level executives in major corporations, and you'll get a very uh, interesting email saying, hey, on my system right here, it says they have a video of me. It says they have some information about me. And it's that little piece of information, like a personalized password, that makes a person believe that now they have been compromised and there is something in their system when there really isn't. It's just the hackers or scammers who are really hoping that maybe you have done something and you don't want it to become a bigger uh, shame issue. Um, In that also, there's targeting within cultural uh, sensitivities, the more conservative the community, the more uh, uh, opportunity they have to apply shame to an individual. Hmm. And and it's not just, uh, I mean, we're talking about this because the RCMP uh, put out a warning about the WhatsApp, uh, the the scam involving that app. But it, I mean, it does happen. I, mean, I know people, there was one going around where it looked like your boss was asking for your cell phone number. And, and I know a lot of people that fell victim to that because it did look so credible. 
Yeah, and what happens is the more credible the website looks, the more a person's inclined to uh, click in information. So same thing with banking. Uh, it looks like a, a web page from your bank, but there's a little change in the URL, the website, that is entirely different than what would traditionally be your bank. So when we call our financial institutions, they'll have these pre-recorded messages saying, we'll never ask for your private information over a phone call. We'll never give uh, information involving your account to somebody. Uh, people have to be a little bit more aware of how quickly information about your finances can hit the internet and it's a hard thing to consider considering most of the stuff we do on social media involves our personal lives but the questions that our financial institutions give us involve our personal lives as well like our mother's maiden name or the name of your first dog or the color of your first car in today's connected world all of that information can be kind of puzzle pieced together by what you put on facebook or social media so a lot of these scammers i mean as much as it might seem like go get a job and you know be legitimate they do put a lot of work in into the effort of getting money out of people. It's just a bit of a lottery for those scammers to really hit on the one person who is vulnerable. Right. So what should people do? Because uh, as I mentioned, a lot of people use WhatsApp and like using these apps and we have uh, a digital presence. What is the best way, do you think, for people to protect themselves? Well, I work a lot with educating youth, but right now in the past two years, I've actually pivoted a lot of my viewpoint about the vulnerable users of the internet being more towards our boomer generation, uh, where we have uh, we have people who are aging a little bit, they're comfortable on social media, and in that they've, they've put a lot of their life online. And if you have family members who are hindered by maybe understanding something on the internet or maybe language barriers, um, you as the more active user of the internet do need to be talking to senior members of your family about how things are are scams online and they are really targeting the pension money, the retirement money, um, the vulnerability of maybe a person's illiteracy with digital spaces. Um, but as it comes down to it, the more you minimize your own presence online, the better you're going to be. Um, whether it's personal information or things about where you're traveling or where you're going, or even at the end of the day, the group chats you participate in, our friends can be really big vulnerable spaces on how they share our private information. But as it comes down to it, and this is the simplest thing you can do, you should be rotating your passwords for most of your online presence every three months. And it might seem arduous for some people to consider, but we learned math growing up. It shouldn't be that difficult to maintain a password to protect your finances. It is. It is one. And, and I know people will hear that and go, oh, that's such a pain, though, to do that. But it does sound like that's that is one way that's relatively painless to keep yourself safe. Yeah, and, and to be honest with you, I mean, it is it is as simple as changing your passwords, having a little notebook somewhere in your home or your office where you can properly secure it, and you just maintain yourself in a way where you're saying um, it might be a little bit difficult to relearn a password, but it's going to be a lot easier than losing $6,000 out of my bank account and having to call credit monitoring companies and banks trying to prove that I got scammed, and it's also going to save you a little bit of embarrassment. But when it comes down to it, if we can't train our brain to remember a four-digit code to get into our bank account, maybe we shouldn't be on the internet in the first place. <laughs> that's, a, that's good advice. Uh, we hear about police cracking down on these. Do they ever catch the people doing this? You know, actually, the past couple of years, the RCMP have had a lot of success working with international uh, groups where you'll hear about these raids in countries, India or maybe in mainland China, not so much China, but India for sure, where we'll hear about uh, a, an office of like 60 people who have been arrested because they're scamming. And if anybody in, let's say, Metro Vancouver uh, has received a phone call where you don't really understand what a person's saying, there's a lot of scams occurring where it's just telephones testing phone numbers to see if you'll answer the phone, to see 
if it's associated with anything. And then it goes into this layered uh, investigation process. And so what happens here in Canada is that you'll have investigators who will start the process. And hopefully they're working with like-minded individuals internationally who are trying to crack down on it as it occurs in their country. So the more that we uh, report, the more that we bring these these stories forward, especially to our financial information, um, it will be better long term. But holding back your own personal info online really is the saving grace of uh, making sure that you're safe online. All right. So very good advice. Uh, Jesse, thank you so much. Thank you, Joe. Have a great day. She checked my status card and she said a few, one or two numbers didn't add up on her. So she asked if I had any other form of ID. So I gave her my uh, birth certificate. So I don't have any other picture ID. And um, she didn't say anything about my daughter, my granddaughter's status card for a long time. Uh, but she asked questions about my banking information when I did, when it's last time I did a transaction. I said about 12.30 last night, I um, transferred $500 to my grandson. And she said, oh, good, great. And she asked me where I was born, where I lived. And and she said she had to bring our status cards up to the office to get verified. Um, she came back down with two pieces of paper. She said that, um, sorry, they couldn't issue a bank card for my granddaughter because of the issues with the status cards. At this time, she didn't tell me that she thought it was a, we were doing a fraud scam, I guess. All right, that was Maxwell Johnson, and he was speaking with Global News about an incident that took place on December 20th at the downtown Vancouver Bank of Montreal branch. That's the branch on Burrard Street. Now, what followed that exchange was uh, Maxwell Johnson and his 12-year-old granddaughter were both handcuffed as Vancouver police responded to a call of a fraud in progress. Uh, They were told they were not under arrest, but they were being detained as police investigated. Now, since that happened and since we've been reporting on that to both the Vancouver Police Department and the Bank of Montreal have issued statements. Uh, Police call it a regrettable incident. Uh, The Bank of Montreal says they apologize. They are going to use it as a learning opportunity. Uh, But all of the reaction that I am seeing to this story is uh, outrage and is that this was absolutely unacceptable and should not have happened in the first place. Now, the Union of BC Indian Chiefs Chiefs, as well as the BC Assembly of First Nations uh, have issued statements on this talking about the fact that, again, it is unacceptable. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this and some other incidents is Grand Chief Stuart Phillip. He is the president of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. So, Grand Chief, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Uh, what is your response to what happened to Maxwell Johnson and his 12-year-old granddaughter at that bank? Well, without question, um, um, our collective reaction was uh, a sense of of absolute outrage at a at a young girl uh, who is simply um, engaging in what one may consider a rite of passage to open a bank account, and her and her grandpa go to the bank for that uh, purpose and wind up um, in handcuffs and you know, a, a public spectacle and a very traumatic event. Uh, the, the the young girl was um, crying and, and uh, you know, she's um, obviously never going to forget this incident. And I don't think there's any excuse for handcuffing a 12-year-old girl under the, the circumstances that um, took place at the Bank of Montreal. Uh, and where do you place, um, I don't know if blame is the right word, because, I mean, there's there are a couple of things here. It's the fact that this teller 
uh, didn't tell Maxwell Johnson and didn't tell him that she suspected he was committing fraud. Uh, instead, uh, we can assume she talked to a manager or talked to somebody else before police were called. Uh, but it was the police decision when they arrived to put the two in handcuffs. Who do you kind of, uh, who are you more angry at? Well, I think both parties uh, carry the blame and share the blame in regard to this outrageous incident of handcuffing that 12-year-old girl. Um, um, the bank um, obviously had made racist assumptions in regard to the grandfather, um, given the fact that he had $30,000 in his account. And obviously the assumption is uh, no Indigenous man would have that type of uh, money in his account if there wasn't something untoward uh, going on. And so the assumption is that um, being Indigenous, there's there's obviously, um, uh, you know, some type of uh, criminal um, intent involved here and acted accordingly on those racist uh, uh, views and perceptions. Uh, absolutely. And you mentioned uh, the $30,000 in the account. And we talked to Maxwell Johnson about that because, uh, I mean, fair enough, perhaps a lot of people don't walk into the bank, no matter what you look like. Not a lot of people are walking into the bank and are accessing an account that has $30,000 in it. But he even mentioned and said, had she asked about the money in his account, he would have mentioned, we all just got a payout on, uh, we got a payout in the health sick nation. And there was a reason that there was $30,000 in the account that it was part of a payout from from the band, and there, that was why he had that money. Uh, he also mentioned that the teller, or there was some question of his granddaughter having a status card and saying that she was too young to have the card. And he said, had he been questioned about that, he would have explained that everybody has one because they need it to travel. And the fact that hers was the same number as her, uh, her mother's uh, was because she was 12. Uh, is there... A, a, an opportunity here. Do people need more education, do you think, when it comes to status cards? I really think that's um, somewhat of a red herring. Uh, um, you know, the fact of the matter is uh, there was uh, uh, racist um, assumptions made and uh, the bank acted accordingly. Um, um, you know, if I had an account at the Bank of Montreal, I would certainly be I, I certainly would have closed it down by now in reaction to this outrageous circumstances. Absolutely, and I, and I think a lot of people would agree with you. Um, in a statement from Vancouver Police, because we did reach out to police to, to find out why was the decision made to handcuff these people. I mean, they weren't being threatening, they weren't causing a problem, they weren't, it, it didn't appear, and again, I'm, I'm not a police officer, but it didn't appear that there was anything in this scenario that justified the use of handcuffs. Now, in a statement, police have said that uh, the officers that conducted the investigation, they made the decision to use handcuffs to contain the situation while they completed their investigation. Uh, is this a common thing? I don't think so. I think, um, again, it's, um, you know, um, I absolutely believe if uh, grandfather was from British properties and this happened at, um, in North Vancouver at Park Royal, uh, the police wouldn't have handcuffed a non-native resident of, of um, 
British properties and his granddaughter. Um, you know, it's it's obviously um, you know there's racist um, 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 attitudes and behavior involved here. A lot of people are responding to this. Uh, I tweeted out a picture of Maxwell Johnson and his granddaughter. It was a picture that he gave me on Friday. And the the tweet has had nothing but support. People that know Maxwell Johnson saying he's a, a fantastic individual. People are outraged by this. How do we learn from this? How do we stop this from happening again? Well, I think there has to be accountability on both on the part of the Vancouver Police Department. I think that was... Uh, absolutely um, irresponsible statement from VPD in regard to, um, you know, making excuses for this racist conduct. And on the part of the Bank of Montreal, I think there needs to be accountability. Um, We're, um, you know, prepared to support the grandfather in the event that, um, you know, he's going to take further steps with this... uh, you know, this incident. And and he has said that he's uh, talked to a lawyer and he would like to file a human rights complaint. Uh, in a situation like this, does an apology mean anything? Because the statements from both the Bank of Montreal and the Vancouver Police Department are very different in that the bank released a statement saying they unequivocally apologize. The police statement doesn't apologize. It calls it a regrettable situation. Does an apology mean anything? No, um, um Certainly an apology is, you know, part of um, um, a process to make this right, but it's not the entire uh, response that's necessary. And I think um, uh, the grandfather and and his family will determine, you know, what it's going to take to, to rectify this situation. And and do you think a human rights complaint it will help rectify it? Yes, I do. Absolutely. Uh, the the statement released uh, from uh, the BC Assembly of First Nations as well as as the Union of BC Indian Chiefs also talks about the other case. So there was another story in the news that had to do with a complaint that was made about a smudging ceremony in a school. Uh, is that also an opportunity, do you think, to learn from this and, and, and to better understand the importance uh, of ceremonies and to, and to for people that might take offense for, for whatever reason? Yes, I think that was, um, you know, we certainly applauded that decision. And um, um, I think this country is going to have to learn to walk the walk. Um, There's a a great deal of of public dialogue and discourse on the notion of reconciliation. Yet these uh, racist um, uh, incidents and behaviors and attitudes continue to persist. And, um, you know, we need to make a, a, a very concerted effort uh, through the public school system and other institutions to um, call out this uh, unacceptable racist behavior. It's, it's very hurtful. It's uh, very painful for uh, people of color, and it, it needs to stop. All right. I 
I think I think everybody would absolutely agree uh, with that. Uh, I wanted to ask you one other question uh, just before I let you go, because I know I saw you yesterday uh, at a very large march and rally in downtown Vancouver. Uh, it was people opposing uh, the Coastal Gas Link pipeline. Um, there is also word out from the RCMP that RCMP and some of the hereditary chiefs are meeting and they're hoping for a peaceful resolution to that situation. Do you think that's possible? It's, um, you know, it, it's a very uh, challenging situation. Um, you know, we're hopeful that there will be a peaceful resolution achieved through discussions between the RCMP and uh, uh, Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs or the um, hereditary chiefs and, uh, and the government of Canada and the government of British Columbia. Um, but, uh, you know, certainly the uh, large rally of solidarity and support were unequivocal in, in their uh, message that the RCMP need to stand down and we cannot um, afford or tolerate another paramilitary assault on, on uh, hereditary leaders and elders, uh, such as what happened over a year ago up in the Wet'suwet'en territory. And what about the people who support the pipeline and have signed on and would like to see it go ahead? Well, I'm certainly, you know, they're within their their right to do that, but uh, hereditary chiefs have um, um, a, you know, a, a legal right uh, in, in regard to demanding um, um, to be... Um, to, you know, the issue here is consent. Uh, in the aftermath of the Chilcotin decision, uh, Bill 41, the uh, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, it's no longer uh, a matter of mere drive-by consultation. Um, the corporations need the absolute full consent of Indigenous peoples before they proceed with these large uh, resource development projects, and they don't have that in Wet'suwet'en territory, and they need to um, rectify that situation. All right. Uh, Grand Chief Stuart Phillip, we are out of time, but I uh, appreciate you coming on the show this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.